proudly student and listener-supported community radio. CIUT 89.5 FM, celebrating 35 years as the sound of your city. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Yes, another week has passed by, but the same issue is still with us. So today to speak about uh, the hashtag Ottawa siege or hashtag flu trucks clan or however you see them, uh, is Alex Grant, editor so many times on our Left Left or Leftist panel. And in the second part of the show, we have the member of provincial parliament for Ottawa Centre, Joel Harden, who's been in the thick of it. Uh, Alex, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Hi, Sherry. Great to chat again. Okay. So let's dig right in. Uh, first of all, what is this about? Who are these people? Why are they there? Yeah, so this has created a lot of confusion, but the reality is that the leaders of the truckers movement, I'm making air quotes right now because there's very few actual truckers in the truckers movement, um, are based out west. Uh, a lot of them are connected with far-right uh, Wexit, uh, Western separatist parties, right populism, like uh, Bernier's People's Party of Canada, and, and, and one of the reasons you can tell this is not a truckers movement is that if it was, well, first of all, the, um, the color of the skin would be quite different because the, a large number of Canadian truckers are from uh, South Asia and they would be calling for things like longer rest periods for truckers, higher wages for truckers, uh, be better health and safety, for truckers, not just freedom, 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 freedom. Uh, which So this is a movement of the anti-vax and a movement of, to, to the degree it organizes truckers, it is truck owners, not drivers. And, uh, and so it's a far-right movement that has uh, sort of captured this issue. One has to say, though, phenomenally organized, uh, lots of them, still not as many as they say there are of course but but still there are a lot of people and it seems to be almost going global right now these are i mean as you say these are, this is not a working class uprising by any stretch of the imagination but still where's where's the equivalent on the left where's where is the working class where is the trucker uprising i mean we know that truckers used to make a whole lot more money they used to be much better unionized right across north america and now the job is like a lot of jobs you know pays around the forty thousand dollar mark mm -hmm. and which is not enough to live on in this city or most cities and uh uh, 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 why not around real trucker issues? Why isn't the same kind of energy and organization uh, happening on the left? Yeah, well, society in crisis, it polarizes. It doesn't just go to the left. It doesn't just go to the right. It goes to the right and the left. And and sadly, the the organizations of the left, the unions, the NDP, the NDP have, haven't done the full job of creating giving an alternative to federal and provincial governments 
And so people are rightfully angry at the hypocritical statements of the governments prioritizing profits, coming up with completely hypocritical and nonsensical regulations. So this discontent with the status quo has has gone down to a right wing avenue because they they are vociferous, they are unapologetic. Whereas the unions, the NDP just say support the government. Like for example, you know, a year or so ago, we were talking about how there were work refusals, teachers' work refusals, uh, movements of healthcare workers, movements in Amazon plants and uh, uh, transit workers. And the unions, unfortunately, the union leadership just sheepdogged those workers back into the workplace rather than organizing that and organizing it for paid sick days and uh, reduced class sizes and stuff like that. So if the organizations of the working class, the organizations of the left don't give a lead, then the right will fill that vacuum. Speaking to Alex Grant here, uh, editor of Fight Back magazine. Well, I mean, you know unionists, you have rank and file unionists um, in your movement. What is happening with unions from the inside? Why is that leadership seemingly invisible during one of the most uh, obvious crises for most working people who had to still go to work, like teachers, healthcare workers, drivers, every you know, clerks, everybody, and yet, you know, silence, crickets. What's yeah. happening inside the unions? Well, unions are going through various different phases of crisis and, and various different leadership uh, individuals and cliques are being thrown out, but the people they're being replaced with aren't necessarily a big difference. It's it's one clique versus another clique. When it really comes down to it, it's ideological. It makes a huge difference whether or not you believe in socialism. Because if you believe in socialism, then you're not afraid to call out the capitalist system and, and call for a, a total radical revolutionary change. Whereas if you don't believe in a new type of society, in a socialist society, then you have no choice but to accept capitalism as it is. And you're merely trying to mitigate the worst symptoms of the system. And then all of these uh, parties and trade union leaders end up just backing up the government, backing up the liberals and becoming part of the liberal status quo. Uh, and, and the unions don't have to be that, but sadly the, the leadership of it are that and and unfortunately there hasn't they have that layer of leadership hasn't been kicked out by the rank and file yet i want to push a little bit on that because we know and we've talked about this before uh that there have been uh uprisings in the states quite dramatic and militant ones not only in public sector unions but in private sector unions that have been pretty dormant down there for a while I would hesitate to call those people socialists. I don't think they have a socialist con, con, you know, consciousness, but yet they're in the streets, the teachers in Chicago, others in the Kellogg's plants and things. Uh, so isn't there another alternative is what I'm asking. Oh, totally. It, it, it's not just ideological. It is also the force of working class people themselves. And uh, actually, you're like the Sherry, to quote the Bible, the, uh, the first shall be last and the last shall be first that the, uh, the movement in the United States, I think traditionally is further behind that in Canada, but because it's so pushed down, there's, there ends up being more of an elemental movement from below. So in, in a sense, 
traditionally behind and now coming in front and and the movement in in the states yes and you've had the victory of teamsters for a democratic union and some other left radical more militant uh, working class leadership in the united states so of course there is that it's not an automatical automatic question it's not just ideological it is also the degree of pressure from below Let's talk about the NDP, because, you know, I'm going to be interviewing Joel Harden in the second part of this show. Mm -hmm. uh, Jagmeet and the NDP federally supported the Emergency uh, Act. It used to be called something different. It used to be called the War Measures Act. I remember it well and how it was implemented before. But here it is. Good thing, bad thing. What's that about? I think that's a huge mistake by the federal NDP. I don't know what Joel's position is. He's in the provincial NDP, and I, I haven't seen the provincial NDP come up with an official po position. But the federal NDP supporting the Emergencies Act, formerly the War, War Measures Act, huge mistake. Uh, I may note that Tommy Douglas, Douglas led the opposition to the War Measures Act in 1970. And I, I've just pointed out, I am no friend of the leadership of the lack of freedom convoy and uh, but it makes a huge difference how you oppose them how you fight them how you defeat them the fact is that the the measures of uh, removal of the right of assembly to declare areas illegal immediate arrest five-year imprisonment five thousand dollar fines all of that stuff is actually far more tailored to deal with indigenous protests, anti-racist protests, working class movements, and it, and it lowers the bar. It totally lowers the bar. And in fact, there were a whole series of spontaneous working class movements. Actually one I think Joel was at, uh, the Battle of Billings Bridge in Ottawa, where working class people spontaneously got up and, and opposed the far right that's how you need to fight the far right with our own forces by working class forces by the unions playing a leadership role rather than relying upon the state which will take those tools and use them against workers and oppressed people uh, speaking to alex grant here editor of fight back uh, about of course what's happened happening finished happening somewhere in there uh, the situation in Ottawa, yeah, and you know, known by various hashtags on on Twitter and other social media, but uh, flu trucks clan was particularly <laughs> inventive, I thought. But it's you know, clown convoy, other things. At any rate, a movement of the far right. My question was from the very beginning, policing here. So let's talk about the policing aspect of this before even the emergency act was invoked. Why didn't they just tow the trucks? I mean, I, this is a this is like a you know six year old question. But if you or I parked a rig in the middle of our street, it would be gone in fifteen minutes. Uh, they would have a tow truck there, and uh, that would be the end of it. They knew these people were coming. They had it. They had some warning. It takes a while to mass. What what was happening with the police in Ottawa? And what's happening yeah. with police generally? Well, uh, I, I've got a radical concept for you, Sherry. The state are not neutral they are not impartial and and especially the police are recruited from uh people who look to the far right a large you know, when you see uh, them having these thin blue line anti-black lives matter uh, 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 patches 
a large swathe of them look towards the far right and, and, and frankly, fascist organizations. And fascist organizations have entered the state forces, the police and the military. And so uh, large amounts of uh, the police, yes, sympathize. There's videos of, of it. There's a, a, one cop, you know, say, oh, I support you 100% in the Coots um, blockade as they were departing. There was hugs and kisses all around. Uh, for for, pe for literal fascists, where they found guns, flak jackets, everything, terrorists, literal terrorists, and they're still getting hugged by the police. And and, and I can t and actually the majority of opinion at the moment supports the the emergency act, and I can understand that. I, I don't agree with it, but I totally understand it because people saw uh, this in action and said, "Look, we've got to." You know, get them out, get them out. And actually, the, the spontaneous working class um, rank and file movements was because people were calling for the state to act and they would not act because they sympathized. You know, that I've been, you know, both of us have been on dozens and dozens of de demonstrations and seen Ryan cops, you know, coming again and again. But we've never had this friendly response from the police. The left never gets that friendly response. But uh, people saw this in action and started moving themselves. And then that's one of the main reasons for the Emergency Act was the fear from the state that working class people would do it for themselves rather than the state being the uh, ultimate arbiter of uh, force and order. It, uh, it, it was particularly bizarre when it turned out that there was a plot by those same people in Alberta to murder an RCMP officer after the police were hugging them. So yeah, uh, some, some obvious issues there, very clear ones. Also, there was an interesting thing on Twitter that I just kind of, you know, latched onto. There was a bit of fake news, a picture of police absolute brutality, you know, beating people up that in fact was a picture from the G20 if we remember back to when you know police there were hundreds of police that were there and cattling and a thousand arrests so very different response in the g20 to what we saw see and, and you know the siege now it has been said though uh and of course this is popular opinion not necessarily socialist opinion but where were the police when we needed them? And we know that one of the key demands of Black Lives Matter, among others, is to defund the police at least 50%, right? Mm -hmm. So how do, we, how do we sort of square that circle? You've got people in Ottawa who are under siege, who are being harassed, who can't get to work uh, by pretty, you know, fascistic maneuvers, mm -hmm. and police aren't helping them. Well, should they? I mean, where do you turn for help? Yeah. if not police. Well, I find it pretty ironic that you had people who last year were calling for defund the police and now calling for the police to crack heads uh, in Ottawa. And, and they've got to resolve that contradiction. That, but everybody has seen the hypocrisy. Everybody has seen that the, the kid gloves they're using with the far right, whereas they, they crack heads for uh, workers and oppressed people. Now, when I, you know, I pointed out that hypocrisy, you've pointed out that hypocrisy. But the, the, the correct response to that is not to say there needs to be equality of oppression in terms of the police need to be just as violent against the right as they are against the left. 
the I'm not in favor of the state coming in and cracking anybody's heads. Uh, and and again, but I do understand it. I do understand because most working class people don't view the world in terms of left and right. Right. So they saw this far right movement, this anti-science movement and wanted it gone. That's a correct progressive opinion. And of course, the way people are educated is like, OK, then the police should get them gone. There's a disruption, police should get it gone. And, and so that's a totally logical first step of consciousness. But then because of the sympathy of the state forces for the far right, they didn't, totally in action, three weeks of nothing. And then the next stage of consciousness, which is far more ra revolutionary, is, all right, state's not doing it, do it ourselves. And more got done on yeah, Billings Bridge by a group of dog walkers in one afternoon than the entire Canadian state did in three weeks. Incredible, incredible. That shows the power of working class people. And, and actually, one, actually one other thing with the NDP. So the NDP on the one side has been uh, supporting the, the Emergency Act. But on the other side, when there have been these uh, sort of rank and file working class attempts to organize counter demonstrations, NDP politicians and supporters, uh, apparatchiks, have been trying to sabotage that attempt, say it's not safe for working class people to say no to the far right, and, and, and try to mobilize sort of like a anti-oppression identity politics language to say, oh, no, no, we can't, it's not safe. Well, it's not safe to allow the far right to uh, continue on the streets unopposed, and, and you shouldn't be calling anti-racist racist. We need to... Uh, fight this and actually what happened in Ottawa was an example of how to actually defeat the far right. So let's talk about the far right and let's talk about the Conservative Party of Canada. There have been some changes. We have, we're O'Toole's out. It, the rhetoric coming out of the new leadership, it looks like Pierre will win this thing and it hasn't even really started yet is definitely to the right. It, it, I, I call them the Republican Party of Canada now. But what's happening there? Because they're obviously playing to voices and maybe polling that they're hearing. Uh, they want to win at the end of the day, like every political party. What's going on with, the, with conservatism itself in this country? Yeah. Well, the, uh, the, the convoy came to Ottawa with the slogan of F Trudeau. And uh, the person they ended up effing was O'Toole. Uh, he, he was uh, thrown under the bus. And, and, this, and O'Toole lied to the Conservative Party. He, to get elected leader, he pretended he was a right winger. But he understood that you can't win elections that way. And so he, so he seriously moderated in the election and they all felt betrayed and it didn't work. So that's, so the convoy was the last sort of nail in his coffin. Uh, so they kicked him out for a sort of more true blue conservatism. I don't know whether that's going to work for them in elections, to be honest. And, and you have seen this process of, look, that there are, uh, I guess, the capitalist class has, there is an intelligent wing of the capitalist class. Actually, Peter McKay recently wrote an op-ed saying this flirting with, he called it anarchism, of course it's not real, it's not anarchism, but sort of like far right anarchism is incredibly dangerous. That's, that's the voice of Bay Street, Peter McKay. 
Um, whereas Polyev is responding to this religious fundamentalist far right um, movement. And to be honest, I think Bay Street is on the verge of losing control of the Conservative Party. The same as you know, Wall Street doesn't control Trump or the city or, or big business in Britain doesn't like Boris Johnson. That uh, the conservative movement has, has been sort of attracted to a, a far right, which is, isn't where the, uh, the intelligent wing of the capitalist class resides. And, and it remains to be seen whether it be electorally successful, but what it is, is relying upon a sort of a more reactionary social base. And, 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 and it's just an element of polarization and collapse of the middle. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I quite agree with you there. Elon Musk, you know, was one, <laughs> one of those who came out and called Trudeau a Nazi. Uh, I know he's a little unhinged, but he is definitely a capitalist. So there, and there are many other incredibly wealthy people who support the far right. So perhaps you know to, we have not a lot of minutes left, but I'd like to talk about the threat of the far right because it certainly seems like more of a threat after this little experience that we've had in the last few weeks than it did a few weeks ago. And uh, the fact that our far-right politicians are getting aired on Fox News, that American big money, and we saw how much money oh, yeah. was raised so quickly. This is not, these are not little storekeepers or even little trucking firms. This is big money that immediately flowed in. And uh, clearly, that was big money behind Trump, for example. So, so what about this threat? And we we've seen this before. We've seen this in history before. We played this this scene again before. We know that the people that we and they were considered crazy in the twenties and thirties in Germany too, just a bunch of hooligans that nobody took too seriously. So we've just had a bunch of hooligans uh, in Ottawa. What do we do about them? What do we do about them? Talking to Alex Grant here, editor of Fightback. Thank you. So first of all, you do have to see what you're up against. Now, there's been a lot of throwing around of the word fascism. There are fascists. You saw those guns that were found in Alberta. They very, very clearly are fascists. But I, I would call the majority of this movement right populism. Right. And and it's the irony, actually, some, I've seen some people talk about fascism, fascism, fascism. And then at the, in the next breath, they say, oh, but we can't protest it. And I'm sorry, if it is a mass fascist movement, the task at hand is actually to build a workers defense and mass defense like the uh, the unions and the socialists and the Jewish uh, movement in Britain in the 1930s, in the Battle of Cable Street organized 100,000 workers to smash the fascists physically. And so if, if it was a mass fascist movement, that's what I'd say we should be doing. It is, it is a right populist movement and it is a symptom of polarization. You cannot rely upon the status quo. You cannot rely on liberalism. You cannot rely on the state. It needs to be faced down by a mass workers movement. And actually, it was a real shame a week ago there was going to be a counter demonstration in Toronto and Ford declared his state of emergency. And, and it was actually a spontaneous group of doctors and nurses, nurses who called that counter demonstration. And sadly, they canceled that demo with a couple with like a day's notice because of the state of emergency. 
the right wing didn't cancel their demand, even though they were losing momentum. And if the if the people's demo continued, I think it would have been bigger than the right wing demo. The task is to put more people on the streets and say, no, you have to mobilize. That is the only way to defeat the far right. If we rely upon cops who sympathize with the right, then their movement will just get bigger. If we rely on liberals who create the conditions for the polarization, then the left will have no answer. So we need a socialist answer and we need working class mobilization on the streets. That's the only way to defeat the far right. So coming up to an election provincially and you know, a little later municipally, but let's talk NDP just with our few minutes left. The party that traditionally should represent most of unionized workers, maybe it doesn't anymore, but it's certain, well, probably most of them, although unionization rates have gone down and some have, as you've said earlier, defected to the liberals in terms of their leadership. So what needs to happen to that party to make that uh, a viable alternative to any possible right, right wing conservatism that might or might not pick up steam in this country? What do we need to do? Yeah, the NDP needs to call out the capitalist system. The M NDP needs to mobilize people on the ground. The, actually, the, the, the union leadership needs to not just be passive cheerleaders of the NDP, they actually have to put real demands. And, and even NDP came, came out with what sounds like a good thing of $20 an hour minimum wage, but then we find out it's five years from now. Right. And so with inflation going through the roof, that's no change at all. So th there needs to be that turn in the NDP. I, I seriously doubt there will be a turn in the NDP prior to the election. So there might be a very disappointing result. And uh, we'll, we'll see, because at the moment, you know, the NDP cannot uh, break through. You know, it, it should be number one by a long way. They're behind the Conservatives and neck and neck with uh, Del Duca, who's I struggle even to remember his name, the leader of the Liberals. So I, I think at the moment there's a real danger of a very disappointing result, and that's because of the entire period, past period and present nature of the disappointing moderation of the NDP. And we should talk about the, what was it, 1% wealth tax? I mean, that's a joke, truly, considering the pandemic profits that have been made. Yes, yeah. it's like, again, like, we should be talking about free education, right? Uh, we should be talking about radical change. And, uh, and, and you don't get any of that from the NDP. I, I think Joel's on, on the left of the NDP, so it'd be interesting to, uh, at least the NDP caucus, I'd be interested to hear what he says uh, the NDP should be talking about. But uh, at the moment from the leadership, you ain't seeing it, and, and, and there seems to be no prospect of seeing it. Maybe after a defeat, there will be some uh, overturn within the party, but um, it's, it's, it's not encouraging. Uh, speaking here with Alex, uh, editor of Fightback magazine, and uh, two minutes left, Alex, uh, where's the hope? Where, where are the signs of hope here? Well, the signs of hope was the spontaneous movement of working class people against the, the convoy that without any leadership at all, just spontaneous. And, and that was across the country. That was Ottawa, that was Kingston, that was Edmonton, that was Vancouver, that uh, we had elements in Toronto. So that happened. And uh, the movement's on the back foot. The right wing's got the momentum with this convoy. 
uh, but the the anger from working class people has not gone away. And I guarantee you in the coming months, working class people will be advancing again on, on whatever the issue of the day is. As soon as somebody somewhere shows some leadership, we need something to be a point of conflict. Thank you. And listeners, stay tuned. Uh, Joel Harden, MPP Ottawa Centre is up next. CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city. Stream us anytime at www.ciut.fm. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. And we're going to talk, of course, what else uh, in the last few weeks, but about the Ottawa occupation, Ottawa siege, flu trucks clan. There are a lot of hashtags out there to describe what's going on in Ottawa, but no one better to talk about it than my next guest, which is, and who is, Joel Harden, Member of Provincial Parliament for Ottawa Centre in the thick of it. Joel, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. It's great to be back, Sherry. Nice to see you. So give us a timeline, you know, what happened, when it happened, and then we can go into the woulda, shoulda, coulda. But just, you know, so people, we're all a little dazed, especially outside of Ottawa in terms of, because the news has been all over the map about this. So yeah. start it off, how did it start? Um, and then where are we now? Well, I think it's fair to say, um, I, first of all, let me just begin by thanking all the folks who contacted our office in Ottawa Centre, all the neighbours in Ottawa, all, all the people from outside of our city who are looking in on your friends. That has really, really helped people get through this. Um, but let me begin with a quibble with our local officials, and I suspect we'll be doing a lot of that. Uh, the very notion that people didn't know or have any inkling about what was coming as this large convoy of trucks made its way across the country to large media fanfare, amplifying this as a blue collar movement for working people and the throngs of folks gathered on bridges. I think it, it was absolutely a mass movement. This is a big movement. It's not a trifling movement. Um, but at the heart of it were some of the biggest purveyors of hate in this country. Uh, you know, Tom Raleek, Tom Quiggin, Pat King. Uh, this is like, these are the Twitter celebrities of the alt-right. And what they were doing, Randy Hillier, heaven, why would I forget my Eastern Ontario neighbor and, and also ringleader of this? What what they were doing was, I believe, Sherry, seizing advantage of a moment of incredible COVID fatigue, incredible COVID anxiety, uh, incredible COVID frustration. So many of us have lost friends and family, uh, like, People have lost their livelihoods. Um, those who decided for whatever their rationale to not get vaccinated have absolutely lost things too. And I think this moment um, was capitalized upon very adroitly by some some of the folks that I that I named. And I'm not going to name them again because in general, I don't like publicizing them. But I want people to know out there that this was an intentional thing that we did see coming literally rolling across the country at us. So I, I don't have a lot of time for people who feel like uh, we didn't realize the severity of this. We didn't know what was going to happen. But, you know, on January 29th, I think that's when, you know, people really started becoming aware of the convoy on the Friday following. That's the 4th of February, I believe. It arrives in our city. February 5th, it's quite clear that this is not January 6th, USA, take the capital. This is take the downtown. 
like they basically set up their tractor trailer trucks over 500 vehicles uh including um personal cars trucks but a lot of large tractor trailers a lot of um trucker vehicles parked all over the downtown for those who know downtown and can remember streets like metcalf and kent um, Metcalf had one lane open, but was completely blocked all the way down to, I want to say Cooper on the south end. Um, Kent was completely blocked, all of the lanes. Um, that's a street that goes uh, northbound. And um, I, want to, I want to emphasize this. Uh, the folks who came here originally were absolutely impassioned and wanting to make their point. Uh, I, I will admit uh, I am troubled with the flu trucks clan hashtag because I, I think some of the people that came on the Saturday. So we had uh, two of these that became large festivals for people who hate vaccines and, and masks and want to get past COVID. Um, a lot of the people that were part of supporting the movement, uh, I wouldn't say we're white supremacists. I would not say we're people who hate uh, newcomers to our country, hate queer and transgender people. But the problem was given the level of discontent around the pandemic, the size of the demonstration, particularly on the weekends, gave cover for other folks to do absolutely horrendous things that your listeners will have heard about in the news. Um, I can confirm there was, in fact, an arson attempt at a building uh, at the corner of Lisker and Metcalf Streets. There was another building where uh, convoy uh, activists attempted to padlock the doors. Uh, many grocery stores reported that people unmasked were walking into the store, uh, demanding to be served, or harassing people wearing masks on the way in. So, I mean, and last weekend, uh, the Farm Boy and the Messines uh, Independent uh, Grocery Store, which are the two huge ones in Centertown, both closed because of the amount of times that was happening. So, you know, and, and queer and transgender folk, gender non-conforming folk, Indigenous people uh, walking the streets felt and were harassed. And we heard all of these stories. Now, what we'd hear back from convoy folks when I would raise these things on social media to just alert them to the fact that it's going on, there's, uh, this is one of the things I'm hoping we can grapple with in your show uh, today, Sherry, is there really is a siloed world in which people who are reveling in this movement were getting their information and an unbelievable hostility to any other source of opinion. Uh, I mean, I've never seen the level of anger and vitriol on our social media page. And we've taken provocative positions before, as you know, on things that evoke passion among Canadians, but I've never quite seen this. Um, and what we were trying to do throughout the pandemic in our office is check in on neighbours, support mutual aid efforts uh, of people bringing food, bringing support, giving people safe walks, uh, giving people um, the kind of support they needed to feel comfortable in their own city which was absolutely uh, under siege. It was absolutely under siege. And uh, when we would air opinions of uh, folks who were retail workers who had missed paychecks, we're talking about like well over two weeks of paychecks here. The Rito Center has over 1,500 employees, largely low-wage, uh, minimum-wage workers. A so-called blue-collar movement trying to make a point on vaccine and, and uh, mask policy was hurting the very uh, you know working people that they were purporting to support. But when we would share that stuff on our social media, we would be dumped on by legions of convoy folks. And as I understand it from analyses that I've seen, uh, some of this appears to have been generated outside of Canada. Like there are social media content mills that were dumping into representative offices, trying to report media, trying to report. So, I mean, but I, I knew some of the folks that were posting on our social media because I grew up with some of them. I'm from rural Eastern Ontario. And uh, I think a lot of what I saw on the street was 
the polarization of uh, our country and the juxtaposition of rural versus urban opinion and the perception that downtown Ottawa elites were somehow complicit in the suffering of unvaccinated folks who'd lost jobs, who'd lost houses, who'd suffered. Uh, and that's something I really want to work towards healing, uh, to be honest. That's what my mind's on right now. Uh, speaking to Jill Harden, who's the uh, member of Provincial Parliament Ottawa Centre in the very uh, thick of it. Uh, one of the questions that I had and that many might have had is right off the bat, the, the response, uh, primarily police response. But I can tell you that if you were to park a big rig on my street, <laughs> in the middle of the street, a tow truck would be there in 15 minutes and yeah. that would be the end of it. As yeah. you said, people knew these were coming. Where were the tow trucks? Where was the simple response to just move it out? Uh, you know, and, and again, this kind of feeds into, of course, you know, one of the narratives around policing generally mm -hmm. um, and whose side are they on? Because we certainly mm -hmm. have seen them react differently, like at the G20 in Toronto mm -hmm. or, um, or when Indigenous try to do a blockade of a rail uh, line, for example. So, so common sense now, where were the tow trucks? Why wasn't it dealt with day one? So these are the questions that we were asking constantly. And what I can tell you is that there are other ex examples to facing this movement that ended up very differently from Ottawa. So in your city in Toronto, it was made very clear to the people coming in the convoy that they weren't to park in front of the legislature. They weren't to stay for longer than a certain amount of time and exits of roads were blocked off and a mobilization took place and convoy folks made the decision, the strategic decision not to do what they did in Ottawa. In Quebec, I know for a fact that when uh, tractor trailers and trucks and cars came into the downtown, uh, the license plates were photographed. Everybody was leafleted and told, if you stay here for longer than six hours, you could lose your license. You could lose the plates off your rig. Your rig will be towed today. And they left. <laughs> but, you know, and as you know, because you served Ontario for a long time, Sherry, I mean, licensing and insurance are provincially regulated domains and the Doug Ford government did absolutely nothing in fact the premier's first reaction when the truckers were arriving in Ottawa was oh I'm with the truckers bless the truckers and then because this guy is in sales he's not in government I mean quite quickly I think they were surveying their own members um, who were alarmed at what was going on, the stories coming out of Ottawa that I was talking about earlier. And then all of a sudden, you know, oh, this is an illegal occupation, but no action, zero, zero action. So, uh, and, you know, a lot of us have raised concerns around the police from the onset because they are the only public employee group, uh, direct person-related employee group in the city that fought against a mandatory vaccination mandate and still did. So questions arise about the level of sympathy. I'm not saying every officer sympathizes with what's happened in our city and i bet most are fed up with this and want to see but in those early days when pictures were all over the place of high fives and hugs and um you know people watching as jerry cans of fuel being shepherded to cars in the downtown people were furious and what happened in uh the community 
because the community just resolved. I, we did as much as work as we could. The local city councilors, led by the great Catherine McKinney, who if folks on your program haven't followed Catherine McKinney yet, you've got to follow Catherine. Catherine is somebody who we hope will be the next mayor of, of the city, but really was the fulcrum as the councillor for the biggest impacted area in center town leading the charge, but we said from the onset through several emergency town halls we convened, um, we would outlast this, we would survive this, we would survive it with community organizing. So we were doing that neighbor to neighbor solidarity. We were being told by uh, security officials not to protest in the downtown, not to counter protest in the downtown. And we were being given credible information about presence of rifles, presence of potential of violence. And because I knew some of the folks who were coming to town that I talked with earlier, who have violent histories, I was legitimately worried about that. I have to admit, as was Catherine. Uh, so so we, we survived on mutual aid, but right around last weekend, when we saw the police watching, while a beer garden was set up, while outdoor hot tubs were set up and saunas, a stage with a VIP deck and a jumbotron, that was it. And uh, we held a big march last Saturday that thousands of people turned out to. Message was leave our city. We stayed out of Centertown because that's what Centertown organizations had asked of us who didn't feel comfortable, who felt very scared about attracting convoy uh, conflicts against a counter protest. Um, and I think what that did was start to break a logjam on our side as we thought about what, what we could do as our officials were literally sitting on their hands, declaring states of emergency with no effect, um, at least provincially and municipally. And then the day after, I'll never forget it, uh, my sister calls me and says, Joel, uh, the Being Neighborly Facebook group in our community, it's the south end of the downtown, uh, people are going to blockade Bank and Riverside tomorrow morning. And I just chuckled. I said, well, that really? Okay. Well, people are just venting on social media. That happens all the time. But sure enough, the next morning when I was walking my dog in the dog park, which is one of the things this Facebook group is used for, dog parks, kid meetups, and, and cookouts, people are saying, okay, we can't wait to work with you today at the intersection, Joel. You've got picket line experience. You know what you're doing. <laughs> and just see they were there and they were going to do it. And I thought, okay, here we go. And I head to Bank and Riverside expecting a blockade of maybe an hour or two and what ended up happening was we held 30 convoy cars for over eight hours and the only way in which those cars could leave is if they agreed to take down their convoy uh paraphernalia and promise not to go up to parliament hill people were fed up and it started with 30 neighbors sherry and it grew to 100 and then it grew, i mean the estimates and you've probably seen the pictures i think we had probably five six hundred people by the end of that and they were livid and there was so many moments of anxiety and pride I had in that day because of all the things that could have happened. But I can't tell you how proud I was because that really, that really broke a logjam. I got so many city officials calling me after that saying, how dare you go to the counter protest and why are you encouraging this? And, and I would just basically say, hey, look, people are sick of the impunity here. Uh, I'm not asking for people to be locked up. I want serious economic sanctions and I want them now. What, well, what is well, also, on? I mean, when clearly the, the police, you know, as organs of the state are not necessarily always on our side, um, you know, the, 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 the uprising of ordinary people just to take their city back is, right. is going to be expected. And I would think maybe had it happened a little earlier, could have pushed back even more. But I hear your concerns about, about safety. Um, 
So, so let's, you know, let's talk about uh, uh, political response to this. Um, uh-huh. Doug Ford, uh, you know, trying to play both sides. Yes, clearly. Um, BC party in free fall, I mean, around this issue, really mainly federally, of course, because that's where the focus is, but, but also provincially, clearly their right hand doesn't know what their center hand is doing. Um, uh, and they've clearly moved into be, being some kind of Republican party of the North. Um, and, and that's certainly clear on the Hill. Uh, is it clear at Queen's Park is my question, because because clearly with Candace Bergen and the response yeah. of Pierre, you know, waiting in the wings to be the new leader, um, yeah. clearly they've taken a side and the side is on uh, the alt-right, um, tending exactly. towards that, um, which seems a little bit like a death to me for them electorally, but who knows, right? Scary, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What's happened in Queen's Park? on Queen's Park side. Is the same thing happening with the Tories there or what? I can't always figure it out, Sherry, and I haven't been there since early December, uh, but I'm going back on Tuesday. Uh, I've got a question and question period and I can't wait to ask it. Um, and I, I know a lot of Conservative members are ashamed of what happened. Uh, I know this on an interpersonal level because you develop these relationships, as you know, you did too. Um, but I also know there's a hard right in this party that celebrates this, that, that celebrates an element of this. The only person I know of being on record is MPP Toby Barrett, who said something positive about the trucker movement. Um, beyond that, it's, it's hard to say. It's hard to say individually over there. But look, why would the premier originally welcome the truckers? wait 14 days to declare a state of emergency without doing anything on insurance or licensing beforehand, like Quebec did. Uh, so I just feel like you've, you've, you've hit it on the head. He was trying to play both sides uh, and he didn't act. And because he didn't act, people have suffered, like small businesses, workers, community suffered. And it was under his watch. And believe me, his ministers have been missing. Like, I mean, uh, we're talking about Lisa McLeod and Mary Lee Fullerton. Lisa McLeod, my friend uh, Wayne Gates from Niagara Falls tells me, was in Niagara Falls during this announcing some winery initiative. And you know, he, he put the question like, what the hell are you doing about Ottawa? Your city's under siege. And it was duck and duck and duck and duck and not take any responsibility. So, so I really feel as if it's on us as the official opposition to, to put this on the government and let, let them figure out where they want to fall. But if if they truly want to fall with uh, the leadership, the purported leadership of this movement, which as you correctly say, uh, this premier has flirted with before. So the Charles McVitie's of the world, the Faith Goldie's of the world, this is the same entourage of alt-right Twitter celebrities that hate newcomers to this country, hate queer and transgender folks, hate Jewish folks, Muslims, there's a lot of hate. Um, and they they, okay, use, they they carry they, Confederate flags and swastikas, or some of them do. Yeah, well, they see, this is the way I'm trying to figure it out, right? Uh, as someone like you inspired by Christian values, I feel like the alt-right hijacked this moment. They absolutely hijacked this moment brilliantly. They organized their tails off, probably for the better part of a year and a half, getting ready for this perfect moment. And big when, money behind them. Huge. Huge. Well, this would have this this all like you and I are both organizers. And so we can identify when something's rolling out. that's not spontaneous and chaotic. This was very well planned. So I I think I have a lot of conversations going on with people where I'm from, from rural eastern Ontario saying, did you know who your ringleaders were in this? And by and large, they don't. 
They don't. I mean, they, they just know they hate masks and vaccines and they want their lives back to normal. Yeah. So, so Joel, I'm going to uh, jump in here. Um, I could we could talk for hours on this, of course. Um, speaking to Joel Harden here, a member of provincial parliament for Ottawa Centre. Um, my the other huge question, other than the practical one, is where were the tow trucks day one? <laughs> is um, is is about the, the left. I mean, we're seeing the we're seeing working folk. Um, you know, the centre seems to be dropping out politically. You know, and we're seeing the right wing organized, um, getting the, you know, yes, um, it's not all alt-right, you know, fascists or anything close. There's a lot of people who just are frightened and don't want to lose their job or their store or their little business or whatever that are part of this. Why isn't that an uprising of the left? Not around anti-vax, of course, probably wouldn't be, but, but you know, working folk have been risking their lives, teachers, healthcare yeah, workers, 100%, uh, the, 100%. The, you know, the people that you meet in the grocery store working mm. for minimum wage. They've all been mm. risking their lives for years now yeah. uh, for us. Uh, and, um, and they're not in the streets and they're not, you know, um, they're not, they don't have the banners. Right. So, so tell me, tell us about it. Where's the left? Where's the left of this? So I actually want to try to be honest with you and the listeners about this. I, I think the labor movement is really faced with a challenge because as much as the prime minister and others want to write this off as a fringe movement, it is not. It is a mass movement and it reaches deep into the labor movement. People who are tired of COVID, tired of masks, tired of vaccinations, they're not a trifling amount of Canadians. They're a significant amount of Canadians. Like COVID anxiety and mental health anxiety and economic anxiety is big. So I, I know for a fact, I've talked to a number of labor leaders who've dealt with this debate inside their own memberships as we went through the vaccine mandate debates in the public sector and, and elsewhere. So, so look, this is a hard issue for the labor movement and it's not been handled very easily, right? It, like, let's just be honest about that. A lot of the people that were coming to Ottawa were not, you know, alt-right, white supremacist, no, uh, but, but Joel, just to jump in here, um, sure. and I hear you, um, but, you know, I've also had on the show in the fall, it was was highlighting um, activists, many of them south of the border. Um, sure. The United States has never seen a more active and militant response. You know, private sector unions that have been dormant down there for a long time. Now they've yeah. got, you know, a high, bigger hill to climb, but, you know, yeah. you've got the Kellogg's, you've got the, yeah. you know, Chicago teachers in sure. the streets and getting results. I'm hearing from educators that are terrified and uh, frightened and don't want to go. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. so there, it's not. It doesn't have to just be about vaccines, although it's. But it needs to be about safety, right? Sure. Um, so, so there's a role there for labor, right? And there's a role there for the left. And I'm just, you know, the the right seems to be doing our job in some senses. Where are you? We? Well, look, you just hit it right on the head right there. So the narrative in this latest protest, this convoy protest, split very favorably towards the alt-right who manipulated debate into being vaccines and masks, despite all the other kooky stuff that people will have heard about, the overthrow of Canada and whatnot. They, they really, in their own social media silos, which I have attempted to try to understand, they've really pitched their debate about, quote-unquote, freedom as about mandates and masks. And some of the inconsistencies in the public health policy that regular people could identify, right? So I'm at a Starbucks and I order a coffee and I got my mask on, but then I sit down and I take my mask off. Like they play on these 
perceived inconsistencies. I'm not saying public health is, is not right. I'm just saying that they fanned the flames of a moment to their favor. It was organized quite well. Your question, where's the left to mobilize working class people is absolutely bang on. And when I think about our country and the analogies to Kellogg's and Chicago Teachers Union, I look at Gig Workers United. I look at what um, people have done there in trying to extend the reach of the labor movement. And I'm excited, frankly, if we have an NDP government in June that will ambitiously move the goalposts to organize unions and do those sorts of things at new opportunities to rebuild labor. But I think it's fair to say organized labor has been in a very reactive mode in this moment. It's been deal dealing with significant internal debates, internal debates about the pandemic. And a lot of folks, as you said, teachers, healthcare workers, PSWs are in survival mode, like beyond survival mode. I mean, the, the nursing lead in our city, Rachel Muir, told me, you know, her analysis was that we'd broken the bottom of the barrel. That's how demoralized nurses were. And, and people were leaving the profession. So, so I, it's hard to organize new militancy in a context like that. Um, but it, it is happening. Uh, I look at Gig Workers United, and I do see the prospect of a hopeful organizing vision. I think we do have a lot to offer in the next provincial election to get people's spirits back up. But I'm honestly not past a serious reckoning of this moment and a reality that the alt-right gamed this. They absolutely gamed this. They were more ready than we were. And, and it's going to happen again. There's going to be something like this that happens again. So we should be ready. The Emergency Act that was enacted that we grudgingly supported. Um, your thoughts on that? Not a fan, not a fan. I mean, it was our party that stood in the 1970s to say the War Measures Act um, was the sledgehammer. Uh, what was the metaphor, Sherry? The sledgehammer to hit the fly or something like that. That's what Tommy Douglas said. Yeah, yeah. And I know having lived here, having seen this develop, um, we were calling it January 6th in slow motion. Right? Like you could just see it coming from across the country uh, that this was going to be big and it was going to hit us and people were determined, they were determined to make a point. Um, I think with the Quebec approach, with the Toronto approach, we could have nipped this in the bud. But whatever the reasons are, uh, sympathies among officials to the convoy movement, reluctance to get the banking and insurance sectors to move fast, uh, reluctance splits divisions within the labor movement, within uh, people in the trucking industry, perhaps, like whatever, we will figure that out more. But we got pantsed in this moment, but we could have organized earlier in a way that would not have required the suspension of civil liberties. I, I very much believe that. I, I appreciate the box that my federal friends are in. It's not an easy box, but I, I don't think we needed it. I, I think we had the tools before that announcement to, uh, to, to address this. And uh, the, frankly, the prime minister himself, not just Candace Bergen and Pierre Poitier, the prime minister himself did a lot to fan the flames during the federal election to make some of these convoy participants feel subhuman, feel like they didn't matter, they didn't, they weren't heard. And the intransigence we're seeing in the street right now, 170 people arrested. Uh, the reason they're not leaving is because, you know, they feel like the PM picked a fight with them. <laughs> so so let's let's figure out a different way through this that uh, that doesn't dehumanize each other. Let's try to split off the popular support for this convoy movement from the alt-right intolerant hardcore. Um, that's That's where my head's at right now. Speaking to Joel Harden, a um, member of provincial parliament uh, and Ottawa Centre, lived through it, living through it. Uh, so looking ahead, Joel, looking, there's an election coming up. 
it's not that far away in June. Um, what do you think the major issues are in Ontario? At other, I mean, this is a sidebar issue, points to bigger issues, of course. Um, what do you think the major issues are that this election is going to be about? I, I will, so we have a local message, Sherry, and then what I'm, I, I haven't heard the slogan for the provincial message from our party, but uh, our local message, which we're very proud of and which we used amply in this moment was put the community first. Put the community first, community before career, <laughs> community before party, community first. You're there to serve the community and not the other way around. It's not to get on television. It's not to have the solution for everything. So what we did, we held three emergency town halls to try to figure out how people were coping and surviving in this moment. We found out that there was a Discord page with over a thousand people doing exactly that. We already knew people that were doing mutual aid and looking in on folks, but we gave those folks, we shared our platform to help get the message out. We brought a sense of hope to the community that we could outlast and survive this. So that's our local message. We're gonna put the community first. We're gonna keep putting the community first and people deserve politicians and they deserve political office holders that do that. They don't put themselves first, they put the community first. And then provincially, I would say it's about hope again and an ambitious plan. And I think we have one for housing, for uh, climate justice, for reconciliation, for jobs, uh, for renewal, the public sector, for hope. And, and I actually see us lining up with a pretty impressive platform that puts us um, uniquely in a position. I think where, I, I like to summarize it this way, Sherry, it's like, can you imagine a little Denmark in this country? Could we imagine Ontario being a lot more like Denmark? Why do we well, have- Not to? now with the mandate dropping their, their, their death rate has tripled. Maybe Perhaps the use, wrong metaphor. Pick another uh, Scandinavian country, but I, but I hear what you're saying. Just one thought, and, and we've got to close it out because we've got a minute left. Um, but the $20 an hour uh, move, that's great. Can mm -hmm. we make it? like sooner than five years, Joel? <laughs> well, look, I keep telling people this. I I, uh, I work as a critic for persons with disabilities and folks are angry that we don't have a super ambitious plan for ODSP and OW. I keep saying, push me, put me on the spot, challenge me, challenge us on that, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was on, uh, you know, student welfare as a street kid and I could rent a basement apartment and feed myself on welfare. There you go. I mean that, and that was under conservative governments. I mean, there you go. so come on, it's, and, and it's about the tax rate too, as we both know. But yeah, um, well, we need a guaranteed livable income, don't we? We need more socialism in this country. We need we to be need proud of that. We need more socialism. Yes, say the word. <laughs> Happy to say the word, Sherry. And it's part of our history, as much as it's kept from us. And I saw it in this community. I saw this caring and compassionate socialist soul all over the place in this community. And I know it exists everywhere. And we just have to champion it and celebrate it and not be ashamed of it. Thank you, Joel Harden, MPP, Ottawa Centre. Get the word out by advertising with CIUT. We've got the lowest rates in the GTA. Go to ciut.fm slash advertising to get in touch. For business owners and Canadians who continue to struggle, there are targeted financial support programs available now. Visit canada.ca slash coronavirus to learn more. A message from the Government of Canada.